Welcome to today's episode of the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast, where we offer bite-sized lessons and steps that you can implement as a part of your journey towards becoming the very best that you can be. This is your podcast host, Brigitte Bornstein, and just so you know, for planning purposes, we release a new episode the first and third Tuesday of every month with some amazing guests. Thank you so much for joining me for today's discussion. I hope you'll return my handshake to you. You can do that through becoming a part of this community on Instagram, my website, bestyoucanbe.com, or by subscribing and leaving helpful comments. Basically, everyone you come in contact with, it doesn't matter when or where or if you're interacting with the most confident person that you know, everyone has a sign on their forehead that says, make me feel important. Try to understand me. I want to be heard, seen, and valued, or as my husband likes to think about this, everyone just wants you to put a 10 on their forehead. And this approach to interacting is in a nutshell what emotional leadership is all about, but there's so much more to it than just that. So if you just want the pocket guide version to emotional leadership, then try to make people feel important. But if you'd really like to master this pretty respectable approach to leading those around you, then let's dive right in. First, let's start with a basic definition of emotional leadership. It's really just using your EQ instead of your IQ to lead, although both are important. Someone who really embodies emotional leadership is going to be head and shoulders above somebody who doesn't. And I really love that to be a great leader who leverages the power of emotional leadership, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, and you don't have to have the title, and you definitely don't need to have the most experience. But what you do need is actually broken down really well by a Harvard Business Review article into four main parts. And I'll link the whole article in the show notes for you to check out if you want as well. So the four main parts of emotional leadership are self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. And in this episode, we're going to define each of these parts of emotional leadership. We're going to walk through an example of each, give some reflective questions to consider, and then we're going to wrap up really just understanding why this is so valuable as a tool in your toolbox as you're learning how to lead best according to your goals. The first of four parts to emotional leadership is self-awareness. And the funny part about self-awareness is that it's actually one of those things that we all feel like we have but the reality is that most of us don't. Most people think that they are self-aware, but according to some research that the Harvard Business Review did, only 10 to 15% of people actually are self-aware. So since the likelihood that we fall into the category of thinking we are when we actually aren't self-aware is pretty high, like a one in 10 chance, then let's look at what it is and how we can improve. So self-awareness is two things. It's the ability to understand your personal strengths and weaknesses, and it's also the ability to recognize the effects that your emotions have on those around you. Again, self-awareness is having both an awareness of your personal strengths and weaknesses and also an ability to recognize the effects that you have on others. To illustrate this a little bit, let's just look at a sports team. Let's look at how a sports team feeds off of the energy of a team captain or maybe just the most senior player on the team. I think I think we've all pretty much seen a soccer game where the team is behind maybe two points when they break for halftime and emotions can get really high in that situation. Emotions can either get in the way and lead to a loss 
or they can pave the way for a super exciting takeover and then they win the game. So if on one hand, the team captain shows an attitude of defeat going into that last half, two points behind, he or she shows disbelief and kind of just wants to give up, then most likely the team will adopt that attitude too. And we all can predict the outcome. But if, on the other hand, the team captain realizes the effect that his or her emotions have on the rest of the team, i.e. has a sense of self-awareness, then maybe he or she will just choose to display a more confident posture, and then what ends up trickling down to the rest of the players is a positive outlook that hopefully gives them the boost to win and score the goal and win the game. In a more day-to-day environment, I notice my own need for self-awareness when I'm in a bad mood, and I realize that the effect of my bad mood is that I'll see a family member who might seem frustrated literally for no other reason than because I'm in a bad mood. So it's like it rubs off on them. I like to think about how Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh would get super down in the dumps and get a stormy rain cloud (laughs) that would, that was my impersonation. Um, But no, literally he would get a stormy rain cloud that would follow him around when he was in a bad mood. And then that would have a negative effect on all the other characters. Unfortunately, Eeyore is not a good example of someone who has a good understanding of self-awareness. And I'm not saying to you, too, that you have to always be positive and always be uplifting. Just realize the ripple effect that your mood has on others and also the effect that your strengths and weaknesses, right, because that's part of self-awareness, too, have on those around you. To get a little bit better at noticing this, I would personally start by journaling. But first, I have a confession to make. I actually really used to dislike journaling, and I realized that I should probably just add this. When I was brainstorming this, I was like, man, I use journaling as uh, a tool to improve in leadership a lot. But I actually used to really dislike it. So if that's you, I just want to tell you that I used to see it as a waste of time. I saw it more as kind of avoiding actually working on what I was trying to improve rather than seeing journaling how I see it now as an aspect to getting better at whatever that thing is. Just the reality is that journaling is very intentional and it's just not enough to think, oh, I will just work on being more self-aware and then not actually do anything. There's just something really impactful about taking the time to put pen to paper and that extra delay of slowing down your thought process and writing things down and honing in on a specific topic, being honest with yourself, there's something unique to it that gives you the feedback that then opens your eyes to see the opportunities when they arise. And you can you can just kind of jump on them that much easier to improve in action, if that sort of makes sense. But tangent aside, if self-awareness is the ability to understand personal strengths and weaknesses, as well as recognize the effects that our emotions have on those around us, then here are some questions to ponder. When did my emotions last positively affect someone else? When did my behavior last negatively affect someone else? What are my personal strengths? How about my weaknesses and the way in which those affect others as well? That's really self-awareness. Getting to know your strengths and weaknesses and learning to see the ripple effect that your emotions and behaviors have on others. The second core aspect to emotional leadership is self-management. And self-management is just the ability to manage your emotions in both stressful and non-stressful situations. So it's fairly straightforward. And I think after you've identified things to take the next step towards self-awareness, part one, then that awareness kind of carries over to help you put controls in place to manage, self-management, certain emotions or tendencies. And 
I'm not sure if that makes sense or not, but a legitimate awareness, because remember, most of us think that we're self-aware, but we actually aren't, and a really clear, legitimate awareness will lead right into knowing where and how to manage yourself. And you really want this managing of yourself to become automatic, because this is going to be what dictates how you respond in the moment. And this could be like your coworker or a peer says something that just really irritates you in front of a bunch of other people that makes you really just want to retaliate, but good self-management will be what puts bumpers in place along either side of you that helps you stay on the straight and narrow, helps you display and maintain a trait that most people really respect, and that's self-control. Most people really respect calmness in the face of chaos. And what I think I'd like to convey here and just encourage is that it's okay to take a break, to think things through, and to find what works for you to collect yourself before responding. It's important to recognize that we live in a super fast-paced, very quick response addicted society today. So it's okay to briefly hit the pause button so that you don't regret how you react in the moment if you're just kind of like super duper heated up. What I like to do in moments like that, when I can feel myself start to get flustered, is I just like to leave the room, get a drink of water, break for just long enough to take back the reins, so to speak, of my mind, and then I can come back much more calm and able to assess the situation. Or if it's something that you don't need to respond to in the moment, I like to go for a walk. Just some ideas of things that you could do from, from friends of mine is you could have a go-to recording that sets you straight, like a song or a YouTube video or a recording of counts of a breathing exercise. I've also got a friend who has a go-to worship song that they'll listen to and then immediately be calmed down. But again, self-management is managing your emotions in both stressful and non-stressful situations and being mindful of your trigger points. The third aspect to emotional leadership is social awareness. So first we have self-awareness, second we have self-management, and now third we have social awareness. So I don't know if you can tell, but each one of these kind of builds on the other, um, which I think is kind of cool. But so social awareness, number three, is knowing how to read a room. Social awareness is knowing how to recognize emotions in others as well as see the dynamics between them. And I think that this is valuable for a number of reasons. I mean, for starters, social settings can just be super anxiety-inducing, but learning how to read a room can help you be much more calm when you walk into a place that's full of people that maybe you don't even know, and, and maybe they all know each other, and they all have their friends groups, and then you're that one new person, and that can be a little scary. But being calm and just reading the room, observing, listening instead of being focused on talking, all to just slow down that process and then help you see where you want to go in the midst of clicks that can seem at first unwelcoming. And something my husband added to this, actually, if you, if you guys haven't caught on yet, Drew and I talk about all of these episodes before we actually record them. He added that you can't lead if your followers see you as just totally having your head in the clouds and being unaware of what's actually going on, which makes sense, right? Because if people don't feel that you are socially aware, then you're viewed as totally unrealistic. And in the workplace, this could be as simple as next meeting, just observe the people around the table and pay attention to any and all feedback that you can get from them, even if they seem to be bored which would be a good thing for you to pick up on because then maybe your meetings are boring and if you aren't socially aware, then you'll never know that this is what people think about your meetings, right? The example that Drew came up with is like Steve Carell in The Office playing Michael Scott. 
He literally has no idea what is going on ever. And then the camera pans over to Jim and Pam who are just rolling their eyes because Michael Scott is absolutely unaware of any dynamics in the workplace. He's totally unaware of the feelings, the issues, everything in the office. So if you get nothing else out of social awareness, just don't be Michael Scott. And that's just an example, but I remember something really similar to that myself. I remember walking into an event with my mom one time. I brought her as a guest and it was around the holiday season. So we were a little chilly getting out of the car. And so we did that cold, super fast walk to the entrance of the building. We burst through the door, just excited to be getting warmed back up again. But we were also a little bit nervous, you know, not knowing anybody there. We didn't really know where to go, had never been there before. And it just seemed like as soon as we got inside, we were invisible. Everyone there was already in groups. They were already in pods and no one really came over to meet us or show us where to go. And in that moment, that intense feeling of being excluded could have taken over. Like cue sweaty palms, hot forehead, and the nervousness that can literally blind you, keeping you from being able to see the opportunities that arise. But I remember the two of us just kind of looking at each other and saying, okay, well, let's just scan the room and see where we might fit in. So we walked further in. It wasn't too big of a room. It was definitely near max capacity, just to give you a picture. It was a room full of women talking at pretty much top volume with one another. And in no time, believe it or not, we found a great group and we had a great time. And I think that this story was an appropriate example because my mom is definitely the person who has taught me this the most. If you want to be socially aware, then open your eyes. Try not to nervously check your phone if you're sitting down with someone. Make eye contact so that you can show that you're listening and so that you can pick up on body language cues. And, and that's next. If, if you want to be socially aware, you have to listen more than you speak. Remember in the very beginning when I said that the pocketbook version of emotional leadership is simply trying to make other people feel important. And this would be a perfect example of where that is put into action. When you are listening to the other person, asking inquisitive and curious questions, not only does that make them feel valued by you, but it also helps you learn more about them. And then you can connect some dots that you probably wouldn't have connected otherwise. I mean, I remember all the time growing up, my mom would maybe share part of her day and how she got coffee with someone. And then she could literally tell you their entire life story just from one coffee date. She asks questions and genuinely listens. And she can go to an event all by herself, not knowing a single person there and leave having gotten to know all sorts of people because she just calmly scans the room, finds a group, and starts to listen. And that is very socially aware behavior. Learning how to read a room, it's knowing how to recognize emotions in others as well as the dynamics between them. Lastly, the fourth aspect of emotional leadership as broken down by HBR is relationship management. So we've got self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and now relationship management. Relationship management is the ability to influence, coach, and mentor others as well as resolve conflict. And I'd like to highlight that last little bit of relationship management, resolving conflict, because that's pretty important. So many people just say that they don't like conflict and they choose to ignore it, but avoiding the problem 
just leaves it alone to eventually bubble back up to the surface, probably worse than it was in the first place. It also opens the door for more gossipy conversations to happen surrounding whatever whatever it is that's going on. And that can just lead to hurt feelings and bigger divisions between people. So we do like conflict resolution, but it can be hard. And that's why I love how the category of relationship management not only includes this ability to resolve conflicts, but also influencing others, coaching others, mentoring others, because I, I feel like if you can master your own form of one of those three by influencing, coaching, or mentoring somebody, then you can very easily learn how to resolve conflict because it's pretty much inevitable. And I know that that isn't exactly a cookie cutter, easy fix answer, but if you wanna do it well, then you have to be patient with the process. And even learning how to influence or mentor can take time. And that is why I have always been a huge proponent of seeking out mentorship from somebody else to mentor you. And you'll have to probably take the first step and actually seek it out and ask for it. But find somebody who's maybe just a little bit older than you or who you just really admire and respect. And this could range anywhere from who you choose to follow on Instagram to a certain extent to a formal mentoring through a church or a similar establishment or just a friend. And this also falls in line with how we become the sum of the top five people we hang around, right? So if you want to be like someone, you know, like someone who is a super good mentor to others and you want to learn how to mentor others, then find a way to hang around them. And while you can ask someone to mentor you and you can initiate that relationship where you're the learner, so to speak, you don't have to mentor everybody. Not everybody is going to want your input or your advice, and that's totally fine. But that's where being self-aware and listening to people's body language and feedback is super helpful because then you'll realize, oh, maybe this person doesn't really want my advice. Just develop a relationship, but don't force it on them. When it comes to relationship management, you really just learn by doing. And my husband came up with this idea that Learning how to coach and mentor others is kind of like when you're helping someone study for a test. You and your friend are both studying for the exact same test, but when you're the one helping your friend understand the material and you're the one teaching it to them and breaking down the concepts, then that actually helps you learn more than it helps your friend, which kind of stinks for your friend, but that's because you're learning by doing in that instance, and it's the exact same here. So you could even learn by doing if you just volunteer for coaching a kid's sports team or, or something just fun like that. And you can also just be really intentional about developing and maintaining your relationships. So like, for example, if, if you're in an office environment and you're typically really busy all day, you basically stay at your desk, just get up, walk around, get to know people, and make connections with them. Or something I try and do is I try to reach out to people every once in a while just to keep those lines of communication open, just to see how they're doing. Anyway, these are all really abstract ideas that can be kind of hard to apply to yourself, and results are far from instantaneous. But wrapping up, I would just like to emphasize why we as leaders need emotional intelligence. We need to learn how to lead emotionally, so to speak. But emotional leadership, remember, it's self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. As a leader, you can lead minds, you can lead bodies, but the payoff of leading with emotional intelligence is twofold. So when you lead people with emotional intelligence, your ability to inspire them moves from either a, a logical pull where they just agree with you logically, or a poll just based on your professional credentials, it moves from that to the emotional poll, 
I found these two really great quotes, actually, to illustrate for you the impact of emotional leadership. So first we have Princess Diana. If you know nothing about her, you probably know that her death rocked the entire world because she was so deeply loved and respected by her country. And she said, I don't go by the rule book. I lead from the heart, not the head. I lead from the heart, not the head. And the second quote is by Marilyn Hewson, who's the former president and CEO of Lockheed Martin. And she said, you can't forget that organizational success flows from the hearts and minds of the men and women you lead. Rather than treating your people as you'd like to be treated, treat them as they would like to be treated. Small gestures like opting for face-to-face -face meetings or sending personal notes can have an enormous impact on teams and their morale. My favorite part, rather than treating your people as you'd like to be treated, treat them like they would like to be treated. So just imagine the powerful wave that you can create when that individual becomes individuals that you are leading with emotional intelligence. You can just have the most incredible team and you can all come together with a common purpose and become so much more powerful and innovative. And when you jump from the logical to the emotional pull, that extra investment from your team becomes more than the sum of its parts as a result of that really unique synergy that occurs. And then you see things like people becoming self-starters and actually wanting to contribute rather than just feeling obligated to contribute. And they become more than just a tool in the toolbox, they become an asset that grows for you. So, do you want to learn how to lead using emotional leadership? I would think so, especially after this. Remember that any human you lead will have a heart. And if you want to just keep in mind the pocketbook guide version of emotional leadership, remember that everybody wants to feel important. Everybody wants to feel valued and seen and heard and cared about. And if you keep that in mind, I really don't think that there's anything that can go wrong. Thanks so much for joining me on the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast. If you are as excited as I am about diving into our potential and stepping into the very best versions of ourselves, then follow me on Instagram at bestyoucanbe and don't be afraid to send me a message. You can also visit bestyoucanbe.com and fill out a contact me form. I can't wait to meet you. In this episode, I've stuck my hand out to introduce myself to you, but go ahead and do the same for me. Tell me who you are, what your story is, and what you would like to see most in lessons to apply to your leadership experiences. Until next episode, keep going, keep growing, and keep becoming the best you can be. Thank you.